we did Thanksgiving when I studied abroad. I was in Nairobi, and like none of the families there celebrated, you know. And so a friend was like, "Oh, their family that they were staying with could get a turkey," and we we're like, "Oh, that's great." And they did get turkey, but when we were all there to cook it, it was a live turkey. So <laughs> we learned how to do the whole shebang. <laughs> wow. Well, you wow, you his neck it. and you did all that? You did it? I didn't do it, but the brothers, the host brothers helped to do it. But wow. that's how our, our day started. <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Hillman. On this week's episode, the DA's office implemented new predictive analytics software they say can help combat crime in certain areas, and that even modest strategic changes can deter future illegal activity. And a pilot program was just launched to test that theory. Some critics are concerned. And the report cards are in. The State Department of Education released its report on local schools, and as expected, some are in trouble. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hi, Nick. Hi, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. And managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey. All right, Nick, let's start with this new software that the DA's office uh, purchased. They say it's going to be really good at um, combating crime. Tell us what it's purported to do. Yeah, so this software is called Risk Terrain Modeling Software, and it's a geospatial risk uh, analytics software. And basically how it works is the DA's office or whoever is using the software, the DA's office in this case, will plug in uh, uh, basically a map of the city with businesses, um, things like bus stops, streetlights, sort of all these different geographical markers um, in the city. And then they basically also plug in various crime data, um, also for service data from NOPD, um, 311 calls. And what they can do is basically come up with risk predictance based on specific locations. So for certain crimes, they can say, they'll, they'll run an analysis and say, you know, gas stations are far more likely, um, there's far more likely to be uh, armed robbery, you know, within a block of, of a gas station, um, or, you know, within a block of a gas station and a bus stop, it's far more likely to have a, an armed robbery. So the, the software comes up with a risk score for, for these specific locations and then can kind of disaggregate it from the actual crime data and show you where the places that they think are, are most likely to experience this type of crime. The idea being, you know, if you start putting more police or um, doing some sort of other intervention in these specific places, the other places on the map where maybe there hasn't been historically a lot of crime is likely where it's going to migrate to. So the idea is to kind of, um, you know, not only describe where crime has been, but also also predict. Okay. It's been used in other cities, notably Newark, I saw, and but some advocates for uh, privacy and other concerns are saying that 
this city is really different than Newark, for example. Can you talk about what some of the um, concerns are? Yeah, sure. There's kind of a few different concerns. Yeah. Uh, um, one is, you know, this software can be used in a lot of different ways. And what the DA's office says is that they are going to run these analytics and sort of work with community groups and police district commanders to shape, you know, very specific interventions in these very specific locations um, to target certain certain types of crimes. Um, but they're kind of emphasizing that it won't necessarily be more police presence in these places. So they're talking about things like fixing streetlights, code enforcement check-ins to potentially shut down businesses that, that might be, you know, facilitating crime, um, you know, moving bus stops, things like that. But I think to people who are looking, you know, some people are, are concerned that this is a law enforcement agency that, that's running these analytics. And what's going to happen is they're going to rely on police. Um, and, you know, they can say that that, that um, they want non-law enforcement intervention, but, but likely what's going to happen is it's going to end up being more police. Um, you know, we should say this, this is new software and it's a pilot program that's just beginning. So this is all sort of hypothetical. These concerns are, you know, both the concerns and what the DA's office says they're going to do are, are, we don't know yet. And then the other concern is less sort of about the harm that it might cause and just a, a general skepticism that the city is going to be able to sort of quickly utilize its resources in these specific places. Mm. You know, things like fixing lights. We talked to people in, in the lower ninth ward where they're, you know, the DA's office suggested that some of these efforts might be targeted. And so, you know, We've had broken streetlights and blighted properties and vacant lots, you know, for years, and they haven't been fixed. And we know crime is is bad here. You know, what makes the DA's office think that they're going to come in and sort of uh, marshal city resources really quickly to these specific places when we haven't been able to get anything done in, in all these years? Um, so I think those are kind of the two main concerns. I think most people that that I talk to at least feel like if this software really does marshal city resources, non-law enforcement resources to places that need it most and come up with innovative solutions, you know, they're all for it. Right. Um, but I think they're deeply skeptical um, that, that that's going to happen. So. Okay. Fair enough. Because the slogan, and I'm not sure if it's a slogan, but you write that RTM has as a you you use the word theme places not people so they're they're trying to say they're they're sort of getting ahead of the critics to say that this is not racial profile it's not a racial profiling software it instead looks at places but some of the concern is that this could cover for that in a sense yeah exactly i mean you know uh, some of the folks we talked to said, basically, look, this is going to show you poor neighborhoods. And right. there's a reason that crime is, is worse in these specific neighborhoods. And we don't really need uh, predictive analytics software to to tell us this. And if anything, maybe it's going to justify the, the use of, of more police in these neighborhoods. Um, and so, yeah, that's a concern. I think it is, you know, it's slightly different. New Orleans has utilized other software in the past, notably 
uh, Palantir's Gotham, Gotham, I think, or Gotham, yeah, Gotham software, um, which actually was, was a person-based software and it ran, you know, various analytics for um, people's social media and, and things like that and sort of found social networks of people who are most likely to be involved in, in uh, related violence. Um, and then they utilized that analysis to call these people in um, and sort of give them the option of, of participating in, in city services or face enhanced execution potentially. Um, so that is this sort of person-based predictive policing software that, you know, risk terrain modeling is trying to distinguish itself from. Um, but yeah, I think some people would argue that, that there are some of the similar pitfalls there. It also would seem that, as you just noted, that you, you can already predict, you can already, we already know where a lot of the crime is happening in some of these places. And you can, you don't need this software to say the map that you have is a great example. You know, you can, you can, everybody that's in that area knows that that's, that's bright red on your little map. You could argue, one could argue that the money they're spending on that software could be better utilized by improving the lights that are out. You know, this just really basic safety features. And also I, I read in your piece about, um, you know, putting more attention into the, into just beautification. Not, that's not the right word. Landscaping? Just, yeah, I mean, I do think beautification efforts are, are one one potential, you know, uh, outcome of this. Um, so I kind of put those questions to the DA's office. Yeah. Um, and their response was, you know, a few, there was a few different responses. Well, one was that they argued that within specific neighborhoods, low-income, potentially high-crime neighborhoods, there's a variety, there's block to block differences. And sometimes those are obvious, but sometimes they aren't so much. And there are things that this, these, this analysis can show you that aren't necessarily clear when you're just looking at even crime patterns. So their argument is that it can kind of give you a more granular look at what's going on in some of these neighborhoods. And not only that, but that the, the predictive aspect of the software can show you where likely where crime is likely to pop up and that it, you can you can be uh, preemptive in sort of addressing whatever it is about those specific locations that make them riskier, um, you know, either before crime migrates there or they were saying, you know, maybe for whatever reason, there's already crime there, but it's not getting reported. So we actually don't have have an accurate picture of that. Um, so that was you know, their response on, on, on that particular point. In terms of resources, I think their argument would be the initial investment in this software is going to make our investments in infrastructure and um, other city services that much more effective. So it, it's a, you know, I think what they, what they would say, which the, the term the DA likes to use all the time is a force multiplier. Um, so we have limited city resources. We need to know exactly where they're going to be, you know, have the most impact when we, when we um, marshal them out. So, you know, I think probably from their perspective, $130,000 maybe doesn't necessarily 
fix up that much blight, but if it can, mm. you know, improve, improve every decision about where we're putting these, this, you know, money and, and these resources, then it, then it would be worth it. You know, we'll, we'll see. And we'll see what, what sort of interventions they come up with. But that's the, I think, the concept. So tell us about this grant that New Orleans received last year um, from the U.S. Department of Justice. Yeah, so the software was purchased with money from a grant from the DOJ. It was a $1.3 million grant. And the purpose of that grant was actually to intervene, to, to track and analyze overdose deaths. Um, specifically. And the office said that they were going to utilize this. Yes, specifically. Um, so that was what the grant was for. And the DA's office said that they were going to use this risk terrain modeling software to track overdose deaths. And as far as I can tell, risk terrain modeling hasn't really been used for that in the past. And um, that's the, uh, you know, I asked the DA's office and they said they weren't aware of any other uh, municipality using it in that way. But they, they say they're still planning to use it that way, um, that they are going to develop an overdose prevention and analysis uh, program using this software. But currently they are, it, it's it's kind of on hold because they're trying to get through some legislation that would allow for date sharing between um, the health department and other medical EMS in order to better sort of, how should I put this? Uh, in order to make their analysis more effective. So they need, you know, things that are that are currently protected by HIPAA, names, addresses, and, and health records of, of people who actually overdose in order to to design a, a you know effective analysis and, and implementation of this program. It sounds like they they're playing a little loose and fast with the grant money. Um, how, is it really restrictive and that they are in danger of, of not fulfilling what the grant's purpose was? That's a good question. I mean, I sort of had the same thought as you that they're sort of kind of shoehorning this uh, bigger risk terrain modeling program into a grant that's supposed to be ostensibly related to overdose that my, I mean, my guess, and I actually have not reached out to the DOJ specifically about this or, so I'm, I'm not sure when funding would be pulled, but I think if they're probably making a good faith effort to move forward with the initial uh, purpose of it, I don't know that utilizing the software, you know, for another purpose in the midst of would necessarily, you know, be a problem. Um, but it's a fair question and probably one, you know, worth pushing on a little bit more. Okay. So this new pilot program is, is running right now. Do they, are they just sort of testing it f for the time being and they're, then they're going to more broadly roll it out. Did they yeah, give I mean, you right now? It's, in, it, it's, it's starting out in three police districts, which covers most of downtown New Orleans. So it's a pretty big, uh, pilot program and pilot area and but it's just beginning so they had their first meeting last month and that meeting was really just sort of an introduction and it was um the da's office um city officials uh, uh police district commanders and a few community groups as well as my understanding i wasn't at meeting but 
that was really an introduction to kind of how, how this works. And then the planet is apparently to, through these meetings, which are either going to be held, you know, twice a month or monthly, kind of develop specific uh, strategies for analysis. So, you know, police will say we're having a hard time with uh, carjackings um, kind of in this specific district. And they seem to be, you know, taking place at this specific time. Uh, you could run a, an analysis that kind of shows you where the riskiest locations are, um, and then once you've once you've identified those locations, you can also bring them back to the community groups. Well, I mean, I I can tell you that I remember, you know, on next door posts there being some real um, time sensitive moments where the neighbors would go crazy posting. Saturday at 2 p.m. when the Dallings Center closed, there would be kids leaving from the court and there would be there would be reports of kids pulling on door handles all across the neighborhood because they were leaving the playground. Like, and so what what would you do? Maybe there would be a different way to ramp out the kids out of there or figure out maybe actually to keep Nord open. Um, you know, at hours that kids actually might use it instead of closing it at two for some like reason that was formed in 1950, right? <laughs> like those kinds of things might be able to change. I, you know, I you know I was skeptical, Nick, of this whole thing at first, but it seemed like the lead guy at the DFS was kind of like the music man coming into River City telling us how everything was going to be all good. And <laughs> I, I mean... He, asked a whole bunch more questions it feels like the data there's a lot of pieces of data that are going into this that are not just crime based and so i don't know like i remember when hector was little and there was an application where you could plug in what was in your fridge and it would tell you what to make for dinner so that you didn't have to do the same things over and over again and so i would plug it into like i would plug it in the my ingredients into the app and then the same shit that I always made would come up because that's my habit so there's all these complexities like neighborhoods and crime have been interacting for a long time so I don't know if you know it feels to me like this is a little bit more complicated but but if you know on the other hand every once in a while it would tell me something good to make and so maybe this will do the same you know yeah yeah well said. I mean, that the example was Stalin's. The... It was like a way far off tangential. <laughs> well said. Nice job. <laughs> no, this, this Stalin's example is, is that that's, I mean, I think that's probably exactly the type of thing that the DA's office is looking for, like the, you know, that they claim to, you know, want insight into um, is, you know, yeah, what sort of kind of little, little adjustments can be made based on, you know, the geography of these, these crimes being committed. You know, I think that's, that's the, that's the goal. Good analogy. No, <laughs> it's like way, like what's in my refrigerator compared to, to the, I think it works, but it aligns more with the, like you're saying, if the ingredients are there, you're going to get the same thing every time. So like you said, it's it's interesting if there's some they're bringing something new to the table <laughs> with the crossover of agencies. I think in particular. Yeah, 
That's what happens when you spend the you know the first half hour just talking about what we're making for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, I think one interesting thing, too, is beyond sort of the the specific interventions that might come out of these community group meetings, you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to write about this, and, and there's lots of little initiatives in the city all the time that say they're going to do, do certain things, but the DA's office was talking about this in such sort of grand, ambitious terms, um, you know, basically saying it was going to reshape all the the decision making at you know budgetary decision making that this is going to influence you know how every how code enforcement how public works prioritize their their time and resources and so that's a pretty a pretty kind of grand and ambitious idea for for this you know software so I think it's really, I'll be really interested to see kind of over the next year what the reality looks like compared to kind of what they've been been projecting and what they've been talking about with with the city council and and what kind of buy-in other city agencies have, um, you know, and and whether or not they're on board with with what the DA's office is talking about. I think when you talk about integrating health data, right, that's a that's a little bit of a, I think, a scary factor for many folks. And what does that mean in terms of, honestly, what the police know about you? <laughs> like Privacy. Or what the DA's office knows about you or your habits. Yeah, privacy. And does that just mean if you've seen more OD deaths in an area and you boost patrols, are people getting farther away from their safe places or places where they know people? You know, does that push people farther into a dark corner? Definitely. And, you know, it sounds like in order to do this, they're going to need to pass uh, or an ordinance of the city council that allows for this data sharing. And I, you know, I think once we kind of see the language of that and it goes through the process and, and people are able to raise concerns publicly, we'll know a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that whole aspect of it will be another interesting and likely controversial. You know, we had also talked to... A, a data person remember Nick about um, the overdose part of it and the thing is that it would have to be a completely different run of data and all that are like a lot of different kinds of data because what makes a neighborhood better to avoid overdoses is, is like places with Narcan close by a drugstore that hands it off over the counter a fire station that has it available those kinds of things and so it's a whole different equation. It would be the same software, but it would be entirely like a lot of different data that would show, you know, how to better prevent overdoses versus crime. So it's just, it would just be like having Microsoft Word and using it for a to-do list or using it for an Excel spreadsheet, right? Yeah. I mean, I I, is that right? If, given what you, because I was really skeptical too, but that that's what it seems like right now. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, which is why they're not using it for for, uh, uh, overdose, you know, prevention right now. Um, It's because they say they don't have sufficient sort of data input. So, Right. Thanks for keeping an eye on it. Yep. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Katie Rechtal. 
Hi, I'm Delaney Dreyfus, environmental reporter at The Lens. Many people who rely on The Lens never think to make a donation, but if you do so today, you will be helping to promote one of the foundations of a healthy democracy, an informed public. The Lens has proven its worth day after day, month after month. If you're looking for a reason to support The Lens, consider this. Each and every week, we provide outstanding journalism, thoughtful analysis, and a deep commitment to our community. Make a tax-free donation today at thelensnola.org, and thank you. Marta, the schools, the Department of Education released uh, the much-anticipated announcement about how the schools did and what we learn. Yeah, so I, there weren't too many surprises. You know, 70% of Orleans Parish schools got a D or a C, which uh, unfortunately is kind of how we've, you know, run the last uh, few years and decade. Um, six schools got an A, and then five schools got an F. Um, and so that's, I think, where some of the bigger concerns come in. Um, the district overall had a C. But for those F-rated schools, in particular ones that are up for contract renewal, um, of which there are two, I believe, that's, you know, that's a big concern for them. You expect that um, those schools will not receive the extension or the renewal? Um, I think there's probably there's probably two that are in danger of that. Um, we, we, it's funny because we were talking on this podcast about Esperanza potentially getting an F because that's what the district had told us. Yep. Um, and that school pulled out a D, so I think it's very possible that they'll get their extension, which is, you know, good good for that community. Um, but one of the other charter groups in that work, Lafayette Academy, got an F. So I think, um, you know, it's it's questionable whether they'll receive their extension. Okay. You know, to make a really sort of ham-handed comparison to what we just talked about with the predictive or the, what's the shorthand for it? Risk terrain modeling. The RTM, RTM the risk terrain modeling. Is, is it fair to say that just like the overview of crime in the city and schools, it's where resources are and where resources are not? When you break it down, I think that's absolutely, a, uh, if you broke it out, like the, mon- the per pupil spending per head or the percentage of students who are economically disadvantaged at school, you're definitely going to see those trends aligned. Um, and, you know, the six schools that got A's, the majority of them are selective enrollment. So they're um, they're getting those kids who likely have more resources at them. Um, and then I know when you can kind of when you talk about the economy of it and school closure, which can obviously be incredibly disruptive for families and teaching staff, um, the ultimate question there in a or supposedly the ultimate question is supposed to be whether or not students who leave that school will go to a better school, mm. right? That would be the goal in having a district like this where you close schools. But, um, you know, I don't think the district can always guarantee that either. So that that makes the, the high stakes conversations even more potentially painful. Right. Let's let's highlight some of the good news in that report because there were some schools, as we just mentioned, Esperanza, which was expected to receive a failing grade and ended up getting a D because, and so showing improvement is a sign that they were looking for, and that's that's good. You know, if you're on a good trajectory, keep it going. 
We had two city high schools, uh, GW Carver and Kennedy, who were among the top 10 most improved high schools in the state. And we also had two elementaries, um, Renew Schomburg and Success at Thurgood Marshall. And they were actually the the highest growth schools in the state. So that is definitely a bit of good news for the city. We actually did see many, many schools in the district. Um, the, the unfortunate part here is that many schools did, you know, get around a D in their um, absolute test scores, right? Like how students actually did on the test. But state letter grades factor in um, something called progress, which so shows how much students have moved from year to year, um, which is something that uh, advocate, education advocates have long moved or, you know, argued for to be included in, in these types of calculations. And Marta, this is like the second year of testing since COVID or what, how, how, where are we marking it from COVID? Yeah, this is the, uh, the second year, I believe that you're right there. Um, and so that is absolutely still having an effect on, on students learning and, you know, things that have happened over the last three years, including uh, what feels like a multitude of hurricanes as well. Do you know, Marta, anecdotally or otherwise, if they're, if the higher performing schools, the teachers teach the test, they devote a lot of the time during the school day prior to testing so that the kids will perform better on the test and that critics would say would skew the results? Um, I don't particularly have any anecdotal evidence of that, but I do, I mean, I know that a lot of schools or, or some, you know, some schools do really focus on teaching to the test. And I think where you hear critics of that um, is if students are being taught to a particular test, um, what is that helping them gain in the long run or exactly. overall is like a whole child learning experience. Um, I think that's where you'll hear the critics. Uh, and, you know, especially I think if schools are trying to, you know, really grow that growth sector of their, of their performance grade. Um, you could potentially hear critics there if you if you saw types of teaching that are only teaching kids how to test and not actually providing them usable skills in the real world. I don't have any particular example of that, but I know that, um, you know, in a, in a system where your job or school is tied to a high stakes letter grade, um, it can feel like people may, you know, take advantage of that just because that is your, that's your reality. That's your survival. Right. Right. How did New Orleans do compared to the state overall? As a district, we got a C. So, you know, slightly below the, the state's score of a B, I believe they had. Um, and then that's, we've just always kind of been middle of the pack there with, you know, we do have those schools that are not doing well, they're getting Fs. And we also have those, um, selective admission schools that are that are kind of pulling up the, the letter grade there. And I think the real question is how the district helps put a focus on those other schools and provide them support so they can get up to those higher grade levels as well. And, you know, Superintendent Avis Williams has made a point of looking at the enrollment of these selective schools. And, you know, she's talked about um, she wants to ensure that they're racially diverse and that they're uh, teaching a diverse student body as well. Um, Cause in, in the past, that's not always been true. And when do, do you expect to hear from her about individual schools and the decisions regarding their future? 
Yeah, so that got pushed back a little bit because the state had released their grades mid-month. But I think uh, we will hear the first week of December and that the official meeting where she announces them will be um, December 12th. So they get to go through their Thanksgiving holiday break and then come back to the news rather than having it right before. So that's, I guess, good. Yeah, it's, that's six of one, half a dozen of them, right? You, <laughs> right? you either have more time to prepare or you have more time to, yeah. <laughs> to go without knowing. Yeah. Well, we're all taking the next week off, too, along with all the school kids. So um, I hope you all enjoy your holiday. Eat lots of food. See you in a couple weeks. All right. All right. See you. See you, everybody. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Katie Rechtal. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening and have a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>